1: Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast, a podcast brought to you by Calabra, an R&D platform that brings your lab's world-changing research together in one shared space. I'm Kevin Fulta, and I'm grateful for you to join me on this weekly podcast about biotechnology and how these modern-day tools in DNA science are transforming agriculture, medicine, and conservation. We'll cover many other topics, too, featuring leaders at the forefront of science. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's podcast. This week's podcast features someone I've wanted to have on for a long time, and someone who's been very active in social media as well as in science, and someone who has been uh, sharing her views on science through a number of different conduits for a very long time. We're speaking with Dr. Ann Simon, and she is a virologist at the University of Maryland, but she's also the head of the advisory board on Silvec Biologics. And welcome to the podcast, Anne.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me on, Kevin. It's great to be here.
1: It's fun to talk to you because we're not doing this over Twitter.
2: Yeah, that's true. That's true. I see you on Twitter. Well, I yeah, I mean, I I guess you could say see, but I see you on Twitter virtually every day.
1: Well, I, I'm there every day, and it's such a cool place to be able to communicate science with the general public, especially in the days of COVID nineteen. And you know, you 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 have a great opportunity to influence a conversation as you've seen, you know,
2: well, you have a wonderful voice on Twitter. And what I I really appreciate is how calm you are at responding to what are some pretty vitriolic tweets. (laughs) And uh, the only person that I've seen on Twitter who does it as well as you is, is Chelsea uh, Clinton. Who responds to things, and she's always just so measured, and just thank you, and and I'm sorry you feel this way. I mean, but but you're very much like that too. So I, I really enjoy reading your tweets, and uh, and I'm I'm just very happy to finally be here on the show.
1: Well, it's really great to have you aboard because I've followed you for a very long time in a number of contexts, and I will touch on those today. But the first half of the podcast, I'd really like to talk about plant viruses because plant viruses really took a backseat to the human viruses. You know, right now, oh, we can hear your dog.
2: Oh yes, that's that's my dog Cassie, puppy, and uh, she's fifteen. She's still a puppy. And uh, she's snoring, and uh, unfortunately, she has to be in here with me. So I hope the I hope the audience doesn't mind a little snoring in the background.
1: Well, that's all right. Is uh, they um, the big issue on this side is that they usually have to endure the sounds of chickens and turkeys outside, and that's <laughs> my problem. And I try to I try to screen all that out using electronic other filters. It never works, but that's all right. So we'll hear your dog sawing logs in the background. The big thing I'm interested in is really to open up the audience's eyes about plant viruses. We know all about SARS-CoV-2 and the things that are happening in human viruses, but plant viruses are alive and well and causing problems everywhere. And I really, you know, we, we don't have any real format here today so much because I just thought we would have a freeform discussion about plant viruses and where they come from. So let's go back in history. You know, what do we know about plant viruses and when they were discovered?
2: So plant viruses were discovered in the last century, and they actually were the very first viruses that were discovered. Um, the virus tobacco mosaic virus was the was the first virus that was um, characterized. And we take great pride in that as plant virologists. Um, but plant viruses are, are just so much more than that. I, I work on... I, well, I worked on model viruses. So uh, once a virus gets into a cell, what it does is actually very similar to uh, what animal viruses do. And some of the research that's come out of my lab actually was uh, applicable to the work that goes on with SARS. So a, a number of people who are working on plant viruses have made discoveries that were then later found to also be important for animal viruses. So it's a very vibrant field because there's not only the problems that we have in, in uh, crops and uh, what I uh, worry about a lot, which is trees, um, but they're also just wonderful to study. Um, you don't have to you know uh, kill anything uh, <laughs> that isn't a plant. And uh, you can really make an enormous amount of progress by, by looking at the organism. Um, with the animal viruses, so often you're, you're only in cells, cells and culture. But on plant viruses, we can work in the whole organism as well as in a, in a culture, cell culture um, system and uh, as well as uh, in a cell-free system. So, so we have some advantages. And uh, those of us working on, on uh, such subjects as the, how viruses replicate and how they um, are the blueprints for proteins, uh, which is what I specialize in. Um, we've made a lot of progress, and frankly, the work going on in plant viruses is, is more uh, is uh, further along than the work going on in animal viruses in some of these areas.
1: It's really interesting because, as you mentioned, tobacco mosaic virus was the first virus that was really characterized or at least imaged, right? And and and. How, how it's huge relative to other viruses.
2: Um, I think huge in a historical sense, but tobacco mosaic is actually a kind of a small virus. Oh, okay. <laughs> small I, thought it was, RNA virus. I thought
1: this was a big one. All right.
2: No, that's a, it's, it's an okay sized one. <laughs> um, it, you know, nothing special. Um, but it's, it's a very interesting virus. It has a, it's got a very long rod shaped, uh, Structure to it, and so people worked out the structure a long time ago, and and uh, a lot is known about um, just uh, how the virus uh, gets into a cell and how it how it gets packaged. Surprisingly, not as much is known about how it's uh, replicated or translated. I think people uh, moved on to other viruses that uh, that they enjoyed working with more, and left the tobacco mosaic virus uh, for the. Uh, the, kind of the, the historians of, uh, of the field. But what? tobacco mosaic virus, I, I, I'll just say one more thing about it. It is, it is interesting because, you know, virtually all plant viruses, just like animal viruses, are vectored. So the way that they get into a, into a host, which in this case is plants, is through an insect or a beetle or a mealy bug or something like that. Um, but tobacco mosaic virus has a much larger vector, and that's us we vector it and when we when we cut uh if, if you if you grow tomato because tobacco mosaic virus infects tomato and you say oh what's this blackened part of the plant let me use my shears and cut it off ah and then here's another uh, tomato plant it looks very healthy but i'm gonna just give it a little clip here with the same shears and what you've done is you've transferred the virus So people are the
1: vectors. That's really interesting because I know a lot of folks who do a lot of cutting and grafting and don't bother cleaning their shears. So you're just another vector.
2: Yep, you are another vector. There's a couple of viruses that are like that in the plant world where the people are the vectors or the cows that are that are, you know, stomping on an infected plant and stomp on another. Yeah, that's how it gets transferred.
1: That's really cool. So, what is there happening in the diversity of plant viruses? When you look across, you know, human viruses, you could think of a number of different ones that are present. But what's happening in plants? More or less diverse?
2: Oh, there it's much more diverse in plants than it is in animals. There are so many more plant viruses known than animal viruses, and uh, they're causing. I mean, a lot of viruses are in plants, but not causing any symptoms. And these are the ones that are now being found a lot because, you know, in the past, nobody looked at a perfectly healthy tree and said, gee, I wonder what viruses are in here because it costs money to, to do that. And people aren't willing to pay you just to, you know, have fun and see what viruses are in various uh, in symptomless uh, plants. But by doing that, they found a, a large number of new viruses. Um, and, uh, uh, that are symptomless, but but the ones, of course, that we worry about are the ones that cause very severe symptoms. And uh, what I personally uh, worry about these days is the viruses that infect trees. So this is a little bit new for me. I always worked on model symptoms, uh, systems, and I, I never really thought much about um, important viruses and crops and things like that. I thought, well, that's for other people. And then I realized that there are just so many problems right now out there, and it's time for some of us who have you know, garnered a great deal of knowledge to turn our attention to some of these agricultural problems and use our knowledge to, um, to try to solve some of these issues. And so I try to, try to get other people to do it too. But it's something that, that I did about two years ago. I made a, a complete U-turn. In uh, most of the research that we did, to concentrate on on important viruses of trees
1: and uh, vines. Well, that that's really important, and it's good for the audience to understand that in plant biology, a lot of us, you know, number of us grew up with a rabidopsis, and that was the model system that allowed us to work, and it was the white lab rat of the plant world. And we'd start to take the findings to to the field and see how they do and do not apply. And so when you start looking at plant viruses outside of a Arabidopsis. You mentioned trees, but let's go across all of plants, especially economically important ones. What are some examples of diseases that cause problems in plants that really threaten either food security or potentially consumer choice?
2: Yeah, so there are quite a few um, viruses in this category. There are, of course, some very, very important bacteria and uh, fungi in that category as well. Um, the worst one you've probably had on your show already is, is the bacteria that causes citrus greening and the fact that we have maybe eight to 10 more years of citrus to enjoy because at the end of that time, um, all of the trees that are currently growing outside of greenhouses will be dead all over the world. And a lemon or a orange is going to cost, you know, 20 or $30. And it's, it's literally a decade away. So this is the most important agricultural um, issue of our time, and it's caused by a bacteria. But um, but as far as viruses, um, my personal number two uh, in this category is this virus that's called cacao swollen shoot virus, and it causes a disease called <laughs> cacao swollen shoot disease. Um, <laughs> clever yeah, I, name. I clever it's name, a yeah. very, very clever name. <laughs> Um and um this doesn't affect us in the US but it certainly is unbelievably damaging in Africa in um the Ivory Coast and in Ghana and in uh, in uh, in West Africa um in t- the entire cacao industry is threatened right now and what that means for consumers is the end of inexpensive chocolate because over 75% of the of the um, cacao, which is what chocolate is made from, is grown in uh, Western Africa. And all of these trees are threatened. And millions and millions, hundreds of millions of trees, I believe, are dead right now and diseased. And the problem with viruses and trees is it's not like people. I mean, we have vaccines, wonderful vaccines. I'm sure you're triple- vaccinated. I'm triple vaccinated. Um, We have uh, um, some uh, um, products that are now available that will help us to uh, control symptoms of, of COVID that's ravishing around these days. But for plant viruses, there's nothing. There's no cure. There's no treatment for any plant virus. Nothing. And this is this was shocking when I found this out. So the only thing they can do for cacao swollen shoot virus is chop the trees down, that's it. And if they replant in the same place, that tree will, that young sapling of a tree will get infected again. And so um, trying to get rid of the vector, it's a mealy bug. It, it's, it's an impossible, it's impossible to do. Mm-hmm. So they're left with really, no alternatives right now for these trees that are getting infected by this devastating, absolutely devastating virus, and it destroys the the uh, the cacao the seeds and then it and it kills the tree and so um that's just one. There are so many other viruses like that and the reason i'm I'm so interested in trees is that if you have a crop and a virus you know, gets into the crop. um, Well, you lose the crop. And in some places, of course, that would that would affect food security. In the U.S., not so much. But it's one season. And then you can rotate a crop. You can use a crop that 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 virus doesn't infect. There are ways of getting around it. But with trees, you know, cacao trees, for example, live for 40 or 50 years and to have all of these trees die, and it takes years and years before a tree starts producing seeds um, in, 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 for, a, for a number of trees that, that produce actually, you know, fruit and things like that. It takes years. So the, the farmers are just getting more and more devastated. It's millions of people in that part of the world depend on these trees. And the economy of the countries that they're grown in depend on these trees and they're all dying. So this is a terrible problem, Um, not only for a chocoholic like me, but but this is I mean, literally, this will devastate people. It's a very important crop because it's it's it produces a lot of money and and it's not going to be there much longer. So that's a big problem. So that's, that's, that's another one. I mean, there are so many more I could talk about. Grapevine. Oh, gosh. <laughs> there's 80 viruses that infect grapevine, including some that have just emerged. And they can't keep the viruses out of the clean stocks. So you probably talked about how there's, there's um, groups that produce the, the seedlings for growers, and certify that they're clean of uh, of viruses, um, and so in, in Davis, uh, California, that produces the seedlings for the for the um, grapevine industry, they can't keep this virus out. I think the virus that they're having such problem, problems with is grapevine uh, uh, red blotch, which is this this uh, gemini virus. What that means is it's a DNA virus. It's it's rare that DNA plants don't have that many. DNA viruses, but it's a DNA virus that uh, that infects grapevine, and uh, they can't keep it out. So it's it's moving into the the grape the fields, and some of these grapevines. I mean, you know, people have them. They've imported them from France, you know, a hundred years ago, and these grapevines live a long time. And then to get them infected, and again, there is only one solution. You have to destroy the grapevine. You have to kill it. There is no, there's, there's no treatment.
1: So I have to push back a little bit because papaya is a great example of how you can use biotechnology to achieve a solution. So why is that or not a bio, why is it viable or not? So
2: papaya, what they did with papaya in Hawaii was absolutely um, amazing and wonderful. And And biotechnology saved the papaya industry in Hawaii. And what you can do, so saying that there's no treatment, possibly I should say there's no current treatment for most of these viruses. Um, But there is a treatment for a virus that infects papaya called papaya ring spot virus. And this virus just was devastating the papaya in Hawaii. It was the end. It was the end of their industry. And then in Cornell, they developed a... Uh, a genetically modified papaya that produced just a tiny, tiny piece of the virus. We discovered that if you have a tiny piece of the virus around, the plant's natural um, defense system is able to use that to counter um, infection by the virus. So what they did is they made uh, transgenic papaya producing this tiny little bit of of the virus, and now the industry has come back. The plants are completely protected against this horrible virus. And what I should say about that is that papaya around the world is threatened by this virus. And right now in Central America and in uh, Mexico, I believe, in South America, the papaya are all getting infected by papaya ring spot virus, and they're dying. And there is a solution. These wonderful um, genetically modified papaya is their solution, but they won't use it. Yeah, it's, and that's, it's so sad. It, it It's, it's devastatingly sad that the solution is right in front of them. It's safe. It's, it's perfect. And yet they, you know, uh, it's it's so unfortunate that consumers have been convinced by people who who you know lie for money. I mean, I don't I don't even know how to say it. It's it's so awful that uh, that there's something wrong and that they shouldn't do it. And so they they don't have the solution. So yes, there is a solution for for grapevine and for oranges. It's a little more complicated though for grapevine and oranges than it is for papaya. There really is. I think just one type of papaya. And then there's another type of papaya called babaco, which is like papaya, but grown in the mountains. And uh, so making a a genetically modified papaya um, could be used by papaya growers all over. With citrus, there's 400 different varieties of citrus.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And so you would need 400 genetically modified citrus um, which will, which would take, you know, quite a lot of time. Uh, and I know that people certainly were started on it, but what's, what's really devastating because I was there at the beginning of the biotech, um, the beginning of, uh, of, uh, biotechnology and plants. And we were so helpful. I mean, I sat next to, at a Gordon conference, the person who had developed the, uh, the golden rice, mm-hmm. Uh, way back, and he had just done it, and he pre- he presented a seminar on it. It was so exciting, and we were all just so excited by this new technology and how it could safely, um, you know, produce products that were just so beneficial to society. And we just thought how wonderful it is that science was going to lead to such a transformation, and 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 present so many solutions. And then to have what. What's happened up to this time is it really is devastating. And it, and many of the large seed companies are getting out of their their uh, biotech divisions now. So it it's it is it's very sad.
1: It really is, because here in Florida we also have papaya ring spot, and they've actually approved a genetically engineered knockoff of the Hawaii solution for Florida farmers, and Florida farmers want it but they still don't do it. And it's strictly because of the pushback that would come from activist groups that have scared the heck out of an industry as to, well, we'll just boycott and you'll never sell another papaya again. And so this is this is what we're up against here. And I guess what's, what's really interesting is you mentioned you know the golden rice situation where here we are 20 years after at least 20, maybe 25 after that seminar or that Gordon conference you were at. And it's finally being adopted in the Philippines. And so I how think- do we, well, how do, how, how do we, what, is there anything we can do now? You know, you mentioned the companies getting out of this at the same time, a lot of young startups are getting into it because gene editing really has democratized the process. So, you know, what's your prognosis going forward? Well,
2: I'd like to think that gene editing will be viewed as just another way of, of you know, modifying plants, just like what they do with seeds and, and, uh, you know, take them to the nuclear reactors and, and make a lot of mutations in them. And somehow that's perfectly fine to do. And you'll have seeds with thousands of different mutations and that's not regulated, you know, go ahead, organic. But you make a one specific change, just one tiny little specific change. And all of a sudden it's, you know, get the torches and pitchforks. So I it you know it, it's if people have to lie, if they have to lie to make their point, I just wish consumers would wake up and say you shouldn't have to lie about products to make your point. And the fact that since the first genetically engineered plants were developed and we've been consuming them for you know, over twenty-five years now, and certainly in supermarkets, I choose them because I know that that it's better for the environment, and I know that that they don't have the same amount of pesticides applied and things like that. So I actually would rather have the genetically modified version than any other. <laughs> um, but it's it's just very sad that that there's been this, I mean, you know, the, 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 that consumers have just not, that they've been listening to people that are not telling them the truth. And it's, that's very unfortunate.
1: That's why I've said for a long time that if I want to change the situation with food and farming, it's not going to be a solution that comes out of a laboratory. It's going to be a solution that comes out of my mouth. And it really is about how we communicate the science with the public and how we can use the the media to work for us rather than against us. And um, I know you've done a lot of work in this area. So when we come back on the other side of the break, we'll talk about your influential role in major media and television and how you got that job and, uh, you know, what's happening next in that kind of space. So we'll come back in just a moment with more of the Talking Biotech podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Collabra. Collabra focuses on building a user experience that scientists love, but none of that matters if your data is not safe. This means SOC 2 Type 2, 21 CFR Part 11, GMP Annex 11, GDPR, CCPA, and other standards that your legal team really cares about. Collabora follows the strictest global and regional industry standards to protect your data. Learn more by visiting collabra.app forward slash compliance. Now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. and We're speaking with Dr. Ann Simon. She's at the University of Maryland and also the head of the advisory board for Silvec Biologics. And we're talking about plant viruses and the ways that we defeat them. And before the break, we were kind of lamenting together the fact that we're not able to use biotechnology to be able to solve these problems, at least in the traditional sense of building virus resistant plants such as papaya which was amazingly successful. But we've had other ways of introducing genes that maybe weren't hard installations in the genome. And this idea of using uh, viruses to deliver, you know, maybe a, uh, an antisense RNA or something, you know, what's happening in those fronts?
2: Right. So this is um, why uh, I co-founded um, Silvec Biologics with my brother, Raphael. Uh, and it was based on a discovery that I made, just a chance discovery. I found something in the database and it looked like my virus that I worked on, but it was different. It was something I'd never seen before. And what I found out was that it has only been found once in citrus in 1950s. And um, the person who found it and put it in the database uh, wasn't working on it so I started working on it and it turned out to be it's like a virus um, but it infects just about everything and so the idea was to see since it does infect everything and it's symptomless in virtually everything and it also infects papaya by the way um, and cacao and citrus all citrus and uh, grapevine and um, lots of other plants. Um, it's very, very unusual. Uh, and uh, what we thought was that having something like this with such a wide host range, maybe we could turn it into what's called a VIGS vector, and that starts that stands for virus induced gene silencing. So just like the papaya trees in Hawaii are. Um, producing a small RNA that silences papaya ring spot virus, we could have that small RNA delivered by a virus itself, a symptomless virus. So this way, the genome doesn't get modified, and there isn't some big outcry about it. Then, um, so uh, so we founded Silvec and uh, we are actually able to do this with our little um, virus. Um, one of the problems. In the past, since it's very well known, VIGS has been around for uh, 20 years, at least. And so people have asked me, well, why aren't people using this as a solution for some of these terrible uh, diseases like citrus greening and and the olive trees that are dying and the cacao trees that are dying? And the reason was um, VIGS vectors were not stable. So viruses don't like it when you put things in them. They They object. And they tend to spit out what you put in. And so y- having things, y- y- you know, if you're gonna put it into a tree, it's gotta last. It's gotta be stable for, you know, 30 years, 40 years. And, and VIGS vectors are stable for a week <laughs> or two. Um, and so we worked on this. I, I'm an expert on RNA structure and function and translation. And it turned out to be exactly what was needed to stabilize the vectors. So we have got the first stable VIX vectors. They're completely stable and they will last in trees. And so we think that maybe we're going to be able to solve some of these problems. Um, So it's very exciting uh, having this new technology that uses viruses to deliver small RNAs. And hopefully we're going after citrus greening and we're going after the uh, cacao disease. We're partnering with the Cacao Institute in Ghana to do this. And we've got partners all over the world for other things, uh, including Australia um, and uh, collaborations all over. So it's just a very, very exciting time to be uh, working on this. And um, so I'm I'm happy and hopefully we'll come up with a solution.
1: That's really, well, it is really exciting because there are so many food staple crops that are threatened by viral diseases. And you mentioned cacao, which is really big in the Ivory Coast, Ghana, those areas of Western Africa, but, um, uh, you know, cassava, um, brown streak virus, other, uh, you know, other, uh, you know, what are some of the other big ones in global food security that are virus induced that may benefit from such technology?
2: I think there's a lot, there's a, well, let me, let me put it this way it, if you're talking about annuals, that's a little bit different. There are technologies that use vigs that can deliver the virus because these are not stable vectors um, for a short growing season. And they can change some of the uh, attributes of the plant. In other words, maybe make them resistant to drought if all of a sudden you have a drought or they can uh, um, if you have a virus infecting or, or a fungal infection, uh, they can deliver small RNAs that can attack the fungus, that can attack the bacteria. So there there are ways of doing this with other virus vectors um, for annuals. And we're really concentrating on the, the situation with the trees. And it isn't just viruses that we're going after. Um, in some senses it is. So there's a particularly bad virus that uh infects um citrus and it's called citrus tristaza virus. And this is something that um, and certainly in Florida, um, probably virtually every tree is infected with citrus tristaza virus. And the same for California. And it used to be a really terrible virus when you grew the the trees on a different rootstock, um, a rootstock called sour orange. And all of the trees, all of the, the citrus trees used to be grown on this rootstock because it's a great rootstock and it, it, it's resistant to a lot of different pathogens and the trees are really healthy. And, and then came along citrus tristeza virus back in the 1950s and all of the trees died. They had to replace all the citrus trees with a different rootstock because of citrus tristeza virus. So if we can go after this virus, which we can in the laboratory, very, very well, we can go after this virus. We can keep plants from being infected um, using this technology that we have. Then, then uh, growers could actually return to sour orange rootstocks if they could be assured that they would not be infected by citrus tristeza virus. And I think that that would be more resistant to, uh, to HLB to the, the citrus greening. And other um, pathogens that, um, there's some that are these little tiny, they're not viruses, but they're kind of like viruses, called viroids. And uh, there's some pretty devastating viroids. So um, the avocado people are very interested um, in South Africa and in Australia and other places with our technology, if our little thing can go into avocado and move around and infect avocado because this viroid, this avocado sunblotch vi- viroid is, is, is a terrible problem. And there's there just so many other problems like palm trees. Um, there's a, a viroid called coconut kadang kadang viroid, which is <laughs> loosely translated to mean coconut death death <laughs> viroid. So you know what it does, wipes them out. And no treatment, have to chop the trees down. But, um, we're trying to see whether or not our our little virus will actually move around and and uh, infect uh, palm as well, and if so, then we may be able to control for this viroid. We should be able to
1: so well, well let's talk a little bit about viroids because that that is a it's it, well what a viroid if a virus is the borderline of life, the viroid is uh somewhere north of the borderline. <laughs> I mean the viroid itself. I mean all all this is. Well, could you explain what a viroid is sure. and why those so, are so interesting?
2: Okay, so viruses um, they are they all have they all are a, a blueprint for the production of proteins that the virus needs to replicate. And in plants, they all produce a protein called a movement protein, which allows them to move around in the plant and movement proteins are specific for specific plants. And this is part of what gives a virus host range. So if a virus has a particular movement protein, it can move maybe in Arabidopsis, but it cannot move in citrus because the the plants are so different. So viroids are very different because they don't code for anything. Um, They're just a piece of RNA, that's all they are. And the RNA is circular. So it's a little itsy bitsy circular RNA, which means that everything that's needed to propagate a viroid has to come from the host. It needs host proteins to help it move. It needs host proteins to to make it replicate. And some of the fun parts for any listeners who know a little molecular biology is that what replicates a virus is actually a protein that recognizes DNA, that actually makes RNA off of DNA. And yet it recognizes the RNA of a viroid. It thinks that the viroid is DNA and it makes RNA from it. So viroids, um, you would think, you know, it's just a naked RNA, why would this be a problem? And the answer is because RNA is a problem. Um, it it changes the development of the plants. It kills plants. Some of the worst diseases are caused by these little itsy bitsy RNAs. Um, so the interesting thing is what I discovered, which is kind of halfway between a virus. I don't know if I call it halfway between a virus and a viroid, but like viruses, it it has the blueprint for making its replication proteins, so it doesn't rely on the host for the the major uh, replication proteins. It relies on the host, just like all plant viruses, for lots and lots and lots and lots of other proteins. Um, but like a viroid, it uses host proteins to move, and in fact, it uses the same protein to move that viroids use, which is astonishing. It's how these things are able to then. Uh, replicate in an awful lot of different uh, different plants because it's using actually the host to move host proteins to move around in them and not relying on its own so viroids are a really big problem there is no treatment there is no cure obviously if we were able to you know <laughs> make these genetically modified trees we absolutely could target viroids there's no question about that but It's a really sad world that, I mean, if you think about it, Kevin, they would rather that we lose all citrus, that we just, that it's the end of oranges and lemons and limes and and you know kumquats imagine life without kumquats mm. and grapefruit <laughs> and yeah,
1: kumquats yeah don't take me there i mean I Duh, yeah that's kumquats. a world Boy. i don't know that i want to live in
2: i know <laughs> uh, but seriously i mean think of all the things that are made with lemons and lime and mojitos and and margaritas well, and, well, you know
1: you're hitting gin and tonics there I, you, you got and me gin lipped, and right?
2: tonics but but there's a solution i mean that's the crazy thing is is we have a solution and it's, it's like we're not allowed to use it. The solution being making genetically modified trees that will keep the virus from, I mean, keep the bacteria for citrus greening, keep the bacteria from infecting. They know how to do it.
1: Well, and, but, but, and yet but, they can't. But this is the problem. And I talk about this all the time. You know, we have, uh, you know... And, you know, please take this as intended. We have a human pandemic with a few people that are infected, a few deaths from an unusual pneumonia that show up in the end of 2019. And we initiate Project Warp Speed to, init- to identify ways to use biotechnology to create novel solutions to solve that problem. Um, you know, and, you know, here we are a couple of years later, we've still, you know, had problems with this. However, we have 60 million infected citrus trees. Uh, a very strong likelihood that we'll lose the industry in the United States, uh, cut consumer choice, especially for those who are uh, challenged financially, who won't be able to afford a That's right you know ten dollar uh, half gallon of orange juice. Uh, and and so this is the part that bothers me. You know, where, where I live, we grow citrus, and we have had no scent, no evidence of greening where I live but I live out in the country in North Florida where we're probably a couple of miles from the nearest citrus tree but it's inevitable and I guess the, the the thing that frustrates me is the same thing that frustrates you is that there were solutions that were proposed back in 2006 seven eight you know maybe things that were early in this podcast solutions that they're actually using citrus tristeza virus to deliver uh, Um, uh, proteins that inhibit bacterial growth but none of this has been deregulated in a meaningful way and the industry itself says we don't want it where where do we go from making the
2: genetically engineered trees well yeah I mean so hopefully our solution will work and hopefully it will be accepted I mean that's the question is um, will it be accepted so uh my, my brother, Raphael, who started the business with me, um, he has talked to some of the um, <clears throat> activists. I mean, I, it's, this is a G-rated program, so I can't say what I really think. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, anti-GMO, you know, types. And he has to talk to them because I refuse to talk to them. I mean, I will not do that. So he has to, and he's, you know, queried, "What would you, you know, are you gonna, you know, go after us for this?" And they said, "Well, um, no, it's not GMO." So they said, "So that's fine." <laughs> it's so awful that you even have to ask them, and uh, but it's not going to be considered organic because the the virus that we're using will be slightly modified, very, very slightly, but that won't be organic. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean it it makes no sense at all that one has to talk to these people, but if you don't talk to them, then you you take the risk of co- of spending millions of dollars and a lot of time coming up with something that's another fantastic solution, and then to have it, there be this huge blow block, um, blowback against it and so so we're we're trying to avoid that. Because we think that we may have a solution.
1: Well, that's and, really good. But but yeah. that's where it starts, though, is having those dialogues ahead of time. Yes. And, you know, this is the problem that the major industries had by saying, well, consumers will love this technology. We just won't worry about it. By having those conversations ahead of time, you help to at least understand the resistance that you'll face. Correct. And the question really yeah. is, well, is Minute made in Tropicana, which Coke and Pepsi, who you know really own the industries? Are they the ones who will who will greenlight this?
2: Well, they're supporting. I mean, the uh, the California citrus growers have been a, a major a support of the company, and um, I think I think it would be difficult to be supporting this type of solution if they didn't know that it would be accepted. I mean, the fact that so. For, so I get asked this question by the organic growers, I, you know, do you have a solution for us? If this works for growing a conventional citrus, well, what about us? And we actually might. And so if I just had a brief moment, um, one of the really interesting parts of the research on this little thing is what moves it. So this is our little virus that infects kind of everything, and it uses a host protein to move and it turns out the protein that it uses to move is a very interesting protein it's called phloem protein 2 okay another very descriptive name i guess it was the second protein ever found in the in the veins of the plant but it's it's a protein that's enigmatic they they really don't know what it does but it's present at an enormous level in the, in this tissue and one of the things that it does is When the level gets even higher, it forms this stringy mess, this just stringy stuff, sticky, stringy stuff. And this is what is clogging the veins of the citrus trees and keeping sugars from going down into the roots and killing the plant. And so this is part of what is killing the trees uh, that are infected with, with the bacteria causing citrus greening. Well, it turns out that when you add our little RNA, to this um, to sap that contains mostly this protein, all of the polymerized mess goes away within minutes, and instead you form these bundles around our little RNA that protect it from enzymes that that will uh, chew up RNAs. So. One of the things that we're thinking is maybe if we can deliver this to enough places in the tree, and we're working on that right now, to enough places in the tree, and this gets into the veins, it will suck up all of this PP2, all of this protein that's clogging the veins. I mean, literally, it does it within minutes. And uh, maybe it can clear the veins. It might be a way to just completely clear up what's going on and allow sugars to pass down, you know, into the roots again. And maybe it'll save some of these older trees. So that would be an organic solution. So that's what I say is even the the unmodified little virus that we use might actually be able to do something like that because of its very unique uh, movement that uses a host protein to move. It's the very first time this has been found for any virus. So everything is very new about this little little guy that we work on.
1: (laughs) But this is pretty exciting because it means that everything that is already there and established could potentially be saved, which is a big difference than we're going to have to push all the trees, which, you know, you get a bulldozer and shove them over um, and replant juvenile trees that take, you know, seven years before they're fully productive. You know, here we're able to take existing stands of trees and treat them and maybe be able to save them. So am I hearing you right on that one? Yes.
2: I mean, this is what we're trying, this is one of the things that we're trying to do. There's a technology in Australia that allows you to deliver RNAs um, by spraying onto the leaves Mm -hmm. and where the RNAs, even something possibly as big as this. So something that's half the size of what we have, which is still pretty big, can get into the trees. And so we're hoping that it can get in, be protected by the clay, but then the this, the clay particles will come off of the RNA. They're known to do that. And at that point, you're sitting in the vein with this RNA that very, very specifically binds this protein. It's the first RNA that the protein wants to bind, much better than it binds any other RNA. And it could just slurp up all of this protein it's possible i mean it's an exciting idea that was my exciting idea (laughs) but it's an exciting idea and i i just can't wait to try it and so we're we're hopefully going to try things like this um uh, within this next year uh we're ready to start trying it so it's it's going to be an exciting year and that's why we formed the company because you you know, it's one thing to get money from the government. And, and frankly, USDA, uh, NIFA, has been truly wonderful in in the, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars that they're spending to try to combat citrus greening. They just don't have anything yet. It's been a very difficult disease to to work on. Um, but, you know, because of, uh, of USDA and other funding agencies, um, you know, we are we are ready to start testing very soon. So I'm excited. It's, you know, it, it's, it's an exciting time. I wish I was 20 years younger, uh, but it's, it's an exciting time to be doing this research. And I think I'm, I'm just, you know, never going to retire. I'm just going to do this forever because it's fun. I mean, you know how much fun research is. Oh, I but,
1: do. Yeah, I, I totally get that. So this is, does this tie in with uh, Dr. Nina Mitter? Yes. In
2: fact, she is going to be collaborating with us on this. And what's so what's so wonderful is that we each bring something unique to each other. Um, Her technology is just truly outstanding. Um, But the problem is they have to keep using it because they use it on not virus, not with viruses, but just um, RNAs all by themselves, which have a finite lifespan. And so she can deliver the RNAs, but they have to be delivered every month. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you're spending more than the cost of the tree. And the growers don't want that. It's, it's, it's a lot of work. So what we're, by having a virus do this, because once you get the virus in, it's going to stay there for the life of the tree. And it's symptomless in citrus, except for lemon and lime, where you get these beautiful, beautiful gold patterns on the on a couple of leaves very it's beautiful but so maybe it'll it'll beautify the orchards but it, it doesn't cause any other symptoms. Um and uh so with her delivery mechanism and our virus melding the two together is just a really exciting way forward I think for her technology and for our technology.
1: That's great. And people who want to know more about this, uh Dr. Mitter was our guest in I think 2017, maybe about four years or five years ago this month, and it was episode 69, a long time ago in the Talking Biotech series. So (laughs) pretty cool. So we've gone full circle on that one. Now we're really moving along in the time, but let me tap into one other important aspect of the work that you've done. And you were actually a scientific advisor for a very popular television series. So could you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yes, yeah, so way, way back in ancient times, um, I started watching this TV show called The X-Files and I wasn't expecting anything. It, I, w- I watched it because it had a, a, a main character that was a woman scientist. Um, but I was, you know, it, women scientists, uh, frankly, all scientists were per- portrayed in the media really terribly back then. This is, I believe it was like early nineties, 1990s. And, you know, they were always the the perpetrators of what was going wrong and the mad scientists. And, and so I, I, didn't have a lot of hope, but I started watching the X-Files and from the first episode, I was hooked. I loved that show. Uh, and, um, what, it didn't occur to me that the person who was the executive producer of the show, Chris Carter, was the same Chris Carter who I knew and who was married to my mother's best friend. <laughs> and so um, about halfway through the, the series, when I'm enjoying it tremendously, um, Chris was lamenting to my mother at a party that he needed desperately to talk to a biologist and he didn't know any. And my mother turned to him and said, what about Anne. And Chris was like, "Oh gosh, of course, Anne. You know, can you ask her if she want if, if she'll help me?" <laughs> "Yes, I'll say no to that." So I was like, like thrilled, and um, and so Chris called me up and we started talking, and I started helping him with the show, and I helped him through the first oh like five or six seasons on mainly the episodes that he wrote, and uh, what we call the mythology episodes, and then in the new. When, it, when they had a revival of it for two years, I actually got writing credit for one episode, which was so exciting. It said story by Ann Simon and my friend, Margaret Fearon, who's a medical doctor because <laughs> we needed her, and Chris Carter. I, I got writing credit because usually, you know, your science advisors, you don't get any credit. You do it. You love doing it. You want to make the science real. Even though it's a science fiction show, You want to portray the scientists in a favorable light. You want them to be part of the solution and you want them to be talking coherently about science. And, and that's what I did. Um, One thing that people will notice in the X-Files is that, you know, there's no mention of, of, you know, genetic engineering being a problem or, you know, the evils of GMO or stuff like that. You know, it'd be really easy to do episodes that were, you know, fake. It's science fiction, but it was one thing that I told Chris. I said I don't want any episodes with that. <laughs> I said I don't want the show to be part of the problem, and so we didn't uh, do anything anything like that. And scientists, with very very few exceptions, on the show were were the good guys, and Scully became uh, Dana Scully became this icon for women scientists. And so many women went into scientists because of her. Um, because they were portraying her in, in a wonderful light. She was an exciting character. She was um, a, a character who was equal to the guy she's working with, Fox Mulder. And today it sounds funny hearing that. Well, of course she was equal, you know. What, what's wrong? You know, that's how they portray it these days in television. But it was not portrayed like that back in the 90s. So so she was a very refreshing character, and I was just so happy to be able to give Jillian uh, Anderson some really tongue-twisting things to say.
1: <laughs> I actually, I remember watching, I wasn't a huge fan of The X-Files, but... I did watch a few times and I remember them bringing up the Southern blot.
2: Yes. That was a great episode. Yeah. That was me. <laughs> and
1: and, and, I and thought, doing
2: it in three hours, by the way. Know, which,
1: well, yeah, absolutely. You know, high speed paper towels.
2: In fact, Kevin, what, you know, back then people were finding out that I was um, part of the show and whenever I would deliver a science seminar and you, you, you always talk with the graduate students. It's a really fun part about going around and, and giving talks on your research as you, you do lunch with the students. We only had one conversation. It was always about the X-Files. And, and not only was it always about the X-Files, it was always about that episode. And they wanted, they all wanted Scully's protocol for how to do a Southern blot in three hours. And, so that was it. Was like that was what they pointed to as being the least scientifically accurate thing on the show. So it wasn't the the severed head communicating with his brother, you know, telepathically. No, that was okay. You know, it wasn't fluke man, half man, half fluke, you know, half worm. That 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 seemed fine. But a Southern blot in three hours, you know. And so when when Chris actually wanted me to come up with a way for her to do what she was doing. And I came up with the fact that she would do the Southern blot. He said to me, well, how long would it take? I said, three days, if she's good at it. And he said, no, <laughs> she has three hours. I said, no, Chris, she's three days. And he goes, uh-uh, three hours. And so you, you throw up, you know, it's science fiction. You throw up your hands and you said, okay. But I really, really want the other scientist she's talking to to say, not unless we have a blazing hot probe. <laughs> Meaning that a really, really radioactive probe for the southern block, and the funny thing was we didn't think we'd get that through the sensors oh yeah, blazing yeah, yeah. hot probe, you know it was like you know.
1: well, you need a you need a blazing hot probe and an abundant target.
2: Yeah, a probe I mean, with so high
1: specific activity. In a, yes, exactly. Yeah. So, so in uh, in but, a reasonable membrane with high specific activity. Yes. Well,
2: <laughs> somehow she managed to do it, and if you notice, she had a Sharpie enhanced uh, blot. <laughs> <laughs> That's really uh, don't do that at home or oh, in the no, lab. No. But uh, oh well. But um, but it was really fun doing it, and w- the reason I got writing credit. On uh, on this other episode is I introduced CRISPR Cas to everyone, oh, and yeah, so yeah. we were the first television series to enter to actually have CRISPR on the show.
1: Oh, how cool is
2: that? Now, it was very cool, and I was so I was I had to again. It was Chris telling me I had to come up with with something, and so I'm saying, well, it it had to do with modifying the genome, and back in the 1970s. Okay, I mean, it's you know. Wait, it's very complicated but we did it using CRISPR-Cas we didn't do it the aliens did it okay (laughs) because we didn't know what CRISPR-Cas was back in the 1970s but that's what we did and so we had to explain it on the show and we literally we explained it we had these two scientists talking to each other and they're explaining it I had to explain it to Chris oh that took days um, before he understood it enough to be able to write and then I had to correct it But, uh, but it was so much fun. And, you know, you, you hear people talking about that episode when they're, you know, in, in various science settings, um, about, uh, about CRISPR-Cas. Um, so, so that was fun. And, um, so when, when CRISPR started to get more, uh, kind of airplay, especially on Twitter, science and, um, the, uh, the people that follow me were always tagging me and saying, I know all about CRISPR. I watched that episode. <laughs> but I, I, I actually want to get back to that a little bit, Kevin. I know I'm, I'm talking a lot. No, that's all right. I, I, know I know all
1: about lithium crystals. I watched Star oh. Trek.
2: Oh, okay. So yeah, same thing. <laughs> but um, it's really the reason I actually got onto Twitter was I thought that, you know, how do we, how do we impact, um, you know, how do we get the truth across to people? And when I first got on Twitter, which was I don't know back in like 2000, I don't know it was like 12 13, um, I what really astonished me more than anything else was seeing how much incorrect um, science was being you know um, you know going out in the Twitter sphere from people who had no business, talking about it. I mean, cause it was all wrong <laughs> and it was lies. I mean, literally lying. Wow. They knew that, that these were lies and they still said it. And I was absolutely astonished by it. And I thought there have to be more science voices with, with the truth, but how do you get people to listen to you as a scientist? I mean, that's tough. So I thought, well, why don't I do it through the X-Files? So I started. I was actually on the set of the X Files, and I thought, well, let me take some pictures. Back then, they they didn't mind. Now, now, of course, it's like horrible to do it, but back then, I took a bunch of pictures of the set, and I didn't know if anyone would be interested. So I had like you know three followers when I started, and I started putting out some pictures of the set, and I it grew to like like three thousand followers overnight, and these were all X File fans. Um, And so it started with the X-Files, but then I started throwing in science and throwing in about genetically modified plants and that no one has ever gotten ill. No one has ever, you know, from any eating any genetically modified plants in the 25 years we've been eating them, nothing. And so, you know, isn't that evidence that it's completely safe? Um, So I started tweeting stuff like this out and retweeting people like you and and others um, who were presenting the facts. And I thought, here, all of these X-File people will be reading it. And it was amazing how many people said, "Um, can you direct, you know, direct message me because I have some more questions about this. And of Mm -hmm. course, I said, yes. Yes. And and we started talking about it and people went out and told other people. And then they go out and tell other people. And this is why scientists need to be on Twitter and need to be using social media, because if we're not there, there's nobody to counter all of this misinformation that's out there. I mean, you can imagine if, if all of Twitter was just the anti-vaxxers and no one presenting the fact that vaccines are safe and effective. And that's what it seemed like. There was just so many voices on the other side and so few on the science side. And now it's much better.
1: It really is. It really is. It's
2: much better than it was then. So I I felt really good about, you know, doing that. And so using the X-Files to make people see me as a person and then also using politics. And I just thought here they're going to see me as a person because of the X-Files and also that I really care. I care about you know, doing the right thing. And I care about, um, you know, uh, certain politicians that are trying to do the right thing and help people. And so it shows that you're a caring, real person. And oh, by the way, a caring, real person can be very much for biotechnology, because it's safe, and it reduces pollution. And it's, um, I mean, if you're an environmentalist, I just don't see how you can be on this other side, <laughs> because you're literally for more pesticides, and worse pesticides, worse pesticides, and and poisoning the the earth and poisoning the sea. Well, more uh, it's, more it's, land
1: it's, use, more water, and more land use. use, and, and yeah. all
2: of this. It's mm-hmm. how can you be on that side?
1: Lower yields, uh, yeah.
2: I'll say one thing. Every single year I teach, I teach introduction to biology. So I teach freshmen and every year I'm approached by the PIRGs, Mary, Mary Perg for the Maryland. Oh yeah. Uh, Good times. PIRGs. Yeah. And you know, that claim to be environmentalists and all this, and they always want access to the students and they want to come in. They want to make a, you know, give them a talk, get them involved. And I always write this statement to them saying not over my dead body will I allow you in my classroom. <laughs> I said you are part of the problem, and that you are against, you know, the biotechnology industry, and you're for more pollution, um, and for, uh, you know, using up pristine land. And and part of the problem that we're facing with all these emerging pathogens is having to use up more land um, because they come out. And now it's like, whoa, look at these new plants growing near us. Let's go over there and take a peek. And that's what's causing a lot of the problems that we're facing. And they're part of the problem. They are not part of the solution. So I'm always like, no, under no circumstance will I allow you to to come in. But But what you're doing is just so important. And so I've been a fan for a long time. Before I met you, I guess about five years ago, but but I've been a fan for a very long time and I know what you've gone through and, um, and I give you just so much credit for it. So in my own little way, I'm also trying to do the same thing.
1: Well, it means a lot. I, I think that, you know, when you talk about these groups, their job is to erode the trust in what we do. Yes. And I know that when, when we met was actually in uh, October or September of 2015 was right after I got under the bus from, from the New York Times and others were piling on. And as I resisted the pile on, it just even got worse. And uh, I, I think the, the big issue is you have a choice at that time. Do you fold your cards and say, okay, I'll just call it quits now and go back to the lab and to the classroom? Or do you dial it up and say, we need to find a new level to push back? And certainly you and other folks like you have really helped to build, and this is the key word, is to build the trust. It build the trust around who the experts really are. And it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And by making good episodes of the X files that are scientifically accurate, by being active in, in Twitter and social media and answering those questions in thoughtful ways, this is how we change it.
2: And you know, another way that we change it, Kevin is that I do teach freshmen. I teach freshman biology. I always do two lectures on, on, on a GMO, and at the beginning of those lectures, I quiz the students about their feelings, and it's it's ninety five percent against, and five percent for. And after the lectures, it's a complete turnaround. It's ninety five percent for, five against. And and I used to teach this when I was at University of Massachusetts. I taught this. Um, honors seminar and I let the students do all the presentations. I just gave some very basic facts on how you make genetically modified plants with agrobacterium. I just went through it exactly, you know, very just methodically Mm -hmm. going through it. I left it for all of the students to do the presentations. And there were students who were for and students who were against, and they had to look it up. And um, by the end of the class, I mean, it was virtually 100% of the students, and that was not how it started, were wildly enthusiastic about biotechnology. I mean, complete turnaround. Again, you present students with the facts. You literally present them with the facts, and, and they see it. And you're just being honest with them, and they go to the websites, and they're saying, how can these websites, how, do, how can they write this? Yeah. When it's so wrong. I mean, they've done the research themselves and they know that what they're they're seeing in these other websites are lies. And they, they question me and they stay after class. I usually, after those lectures, 50 or 60 students stay after yeah. class. And when the lectures are over, those GMO lectures are over, they literally sit there in their seats and don't budge. I mean, it's time to leave. The next <laughs> class is coming in. It's a big <laughs> lecture hall. Huh? And they don't move.
1: Oh yeah. No they're more. like,
2: they're like, everyone's been lying to them. They're sitting there, you know, realizing how much they've been lied to. And a lot of it is by high school teachers, which is so mm-hmm. sad.
1: Well, welcome and, to my world, though. I mean, yeah. and if I can jump in on this, is that I have had so many students over the course of the years. And maybe you've seen this, too, because you teach freshmen. I think that students today are so much different than they were when I first started in the university at 2002 and that the ones today are very concerned about values about how they leave this earth about and people will disagree with me all day they're saying oh the most narcissistic selfie generation I think these are folks who really do care and they're not worried so much about uh, you know dollars and Alex Keaton you know aspirations like when I was in college. These are students who really want to make an impact. And when they realize that they've been deceived and they realize how the tools of technology can feed the insecure, could have tremendous environmental impact, could, in a positive way, could help farmers and could even aid consumers in providing more choices, this is a no-brainer for them. And, and, and this has been, uh, I'm starting a new class in fall this year, Critical Evaluation of Agriculture and Medical Technology. And it's going to be sophomores. And we're going to talk about um, critical thinking and how you get fooled. And I think it's going to be one of the most fun classes I ever teach. And I am totally totally looking forward to it.
2: I hope it's a big lecture, Paul, because... I think no, a lot of students would want to take it.
1: <laughs> I wish it was. I'm starting out with I think 50. I capped it at 50, uh-huh. but but uh, next year I probably should do it for a hundred thousand because I this is where we need to go. We need to demonstrate to people how they're being fooled, not just in genetic engineering, but in issues of COVID and vaccination. And you know, today I all I did was comment on someone's thing that on someone's post that ivermectin is a great compound for toleration for how it's tolerated and it's low toxicity, but it doesn't work against COVID-19 and, you know, 5,000 replies later, you know, I haven't even looked at it yet. (laughs) So, but I, I think what, what I'm,
2: what, what we're doing by, by teaching the next generation um, critical thinking and trying to separate the lies from the truth. I wish that professors all over this country and high school teachers all over this country were doing the same. And if there were, if if, if everyone was also putting a couple of lectures in to these large freshman classes, in you know, that are being, you know, classes on molecular cell, cellular biology, things like this, where this fits in so well. Um we could make even a bigger difference. So if there are people who are listening to this podcast who are teachers, teach it. I mean, let students hear the truth. Let students investigate it themselves. Let them do it. That's the best way to do it. You know, it's not you trying to force some thinking on them. It's them actually going out and getting the truth and becoming absolutely astonished about how much they've been misled. I get, I get said things like, I can't believe you're on that side. You know, what, what side? The, because I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm politically a liberal. I mean, it, I'm, I shouldn't be on the side of the truth. <laughs> it's like, that doesn't make any sense.
1: Well, there's so many interesting dynamics in this. And, and you and I need to talk again just about that. Um, but, I, you know, I like to keep this thing into a, a normal consumable time frame. So I guess we're kind of running out of time. But if people wanted to follow you online, where would they find you on Twitter?
2: I'm at, okay, at Anna Liz, because my middle name's Elizabeth. So it's A-N-N-E-A-L-I-Z, Anna Liz, one, with a one after it. And you can find me on Twitter, and I would love for people to follow me. Um, I think that uh, um, that you'll find some very interesting things. You'll 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 have to put up with some X Files stuff, um, but uh, but a lot of really cool science as well. I mean, really wonderful science. A lot of it is about plants, but plants are really cool, as you well know. <laughs>
1: And I, and I will concur it's an excellent follow and so you should follow Dr. Simon please do that and most of all thank you very much for joining me today and I hope you come back soon and we'll we'll talk about this idea of critical thinking and how do we better educate people when we have the information at our fingertips and we don't know how to don't always know how to put it together
2: I'd be happy to come back
1: Yeah, let's do it again soon. So thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Uh, Thank you for writing reviews and for following us on our new Collabra format. And we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast is brought to you by Collabra. If you've ever struggled to easily find your research data, or if you've tried other electronic laboratory notebooks and found them to be too slow, too clunky, too non-intuitive? Well, these were the problems that Collabra was designed to address. All Collabra features, including note-taking, task management, inventory, protocols, even collaboration, they are forever free for up to 10 users, so there's absolutely no risk in trying it out. Learn more at Collabra.app, that's spelled... C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P The Talking Biotech podcast represents the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta me, and my guests. They are not to be confused with the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students, and in fact is a 100% independent effort from the university. No university endorsement should be implied thank you for listening to the talking biotech podcast and we'll talk to you again next week